We talk about shouting praise to the Lord, particularly at the time of Thanksgiving. I don't know about you, but I've been through a lot of Thanksgivings, been to a lot of church services, and sometimes I feel like I'm having to like praise on cue. Do you ever feel that way? Like, I know I should feel this more. Um, I'm trying to get going here, and, and I should want to praise you more. I can guarantee you that there's a time when the praise will just burst from your heart and your mouth, and that is on the day when death is gone, and there is no sorrow or tears or crying anymore. The former things are passed away. The new heaven and the new earth are here, and what, what God began in the garden when He promised that the offspring of the woman would come and crush the serpent's head. What God began then and actually planned before the foundation of the world, when He completes that, we will have no problem just high-fiving it all over the universe, right? And because, you know, for praise to be genuine, it needs to rise from our hearts genuinely. We, we can't just, you can't just say, I know we have songs like, you know, don't worry, be happy, but we can't just, we can't just make it happen. We can't generate emotion. There has to be a cause for it. And so the, the, the whole idea of resurrection, that there could be a rebirth and a restoration and that death doesn't win in the end, is really at the very core of the Christian hope. And it's why the passage we're going to look at this morning in John 11 is one of the most beloved passages in all the Word of God. We come to the uh, record of the resurrection of Lazarus from the dead, at least the lead-up to that this morning. The incident occurred sometime between the Feast of Dedication in the winter around Christmas time and the Feast of Passover uh, in the spring, and all this during Jesus' last year of ministry on earth. The miracle increased the opposition yet further to Jesus and foreshadowed his own death and resurrection. It well illustrates why John wrote his gospel in the first place. He puts it this way in chapter 20 of this gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs. Remember, a sign is a miracle with a message. Many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. There's a link between our being rescued from death, having life. There's a link between that and trusting in Jesus. And trusting in Jesus matters because He is the Anointed One, the Son of God. So let's look at this well-known miracle beginning in verse 1 of John 11. Now, a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And if you're wondering, this is going to be the same Mary who anointed the Lord with anointment and wiped His feet with her hair. That's going to happen in Passion Week, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, 
he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if, if he, anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant talk, taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus has already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus said to him, yes, Lord. I believe you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In the first four verses of our passage, we see an illness that is to the glory of God, an illness to the glory of God. In verses 5 through 16, we see delay, death, and danger to the furtherance of faith. And finally, in verses 17 to 27, we see faith in the certain promise of resurrection, a faith that is justified because of who brings the resurrection about, Jesus Christ Himself. So first, consider with me illness to the glory of God. A certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and his sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord at the ointment and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to Him, saying, Lord, He whom You love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, He said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. So Lazarus, Mary, his sister Martha, these are real people who are close friends of Jesus. And John reminds them of what he's going to write about later in John chapter 12 and verse 3. This is the Mary that anointed with pure nard Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. So we're talking about people really close to Jesus who love him and he loves them. When the sisters send to Jesus to let him know their brother is ill, they identify Lazarus as he whom you love. 
Now, we all know that illness is common, but when it strikes those we love, we feel it more deeply. And I'm not talking about just common cold. We, we're okay with that. But when it starts to be something that is life-threatening, uh, when the common cold turns out to be COVID or when um, the, the respiratory problem turns out to be lung cancer or when it's something more serious like that, uh, we know these things happen too. The hospitals are full of people that are sick, but when the sick person is someone we love, that's different. So Jesus' response is not some shallow religious talk. He loves Lazarus and his sisters, and he cares about them. The illness is serious, and Lazarus will in fact die, but death will not be the final outcome. God's glory will be the final outcome. We're at once reminded of the man born blind, whose blindness was not because of his own sin or his parents' sin, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. There are worse things than suffering. There are worse things than illness. And God knows how to take suffering and illness and turn it for good, turn it to his glory and turn it to our good. So when Jesus says, this is for the glory of God, what, what does he mean? I mean, Jesus explains further, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. I mean, does he make people sick just so people will praise him? Is that what he means? When the Son of God is glorified, Jesus makes clear, God will be glorified. Glory is shining splendor, stunning majesty. So when we glorify God, it's not that we're making him more glorious. It's rather that we're recognizing and acknowledging how radiantly splendid he actually is. It's actually a point at which we, it dawns on us who God actually is, because most of the time, we're kind of oblivious to it. In fact, much of the world is oblivious to it. In fact, usually we're running from God as like He's some kind of cosmic bully. We don't want Him interfering in our life. But when we glorify God is when we turn to Him and, and we're awed by Him. I mean, think about it. When you, let, let's talk about those of you that are married, when you met your wife, how do you glorify her? You don't glorify her when you treat her like she's nothing. The, the, the reason the relationship worked in the first place is she could see in your eyes and she could hear in the tone of your voice the things that you did and the things that you said that she mattered to you because you thought she was amazing. Okay? It, it wasn't that she was living life so that someone out there would think I'm amazing. It's that... We, we make, when we make much of a person that, that has qualities that evoke our love, we do elevate them. We honor them. So a husband's supposed to treat his wife as truly valuable, to honor her. He, he does that when he treats her as, as, as someone that's amazing, the person he fell in love with, the person that, that he wants to spend life with. Well, same with God. We honor him. When we, when we love him, when we treat him the way he deserves to be treated. Jesus revealed his glory as God the Son when he healed people from their illnesses. But to raise a person from the dead is greater yet. 
The illness of Lazarus, his subsequent rescue from death, was going to serve to reveal what a glorious, what an amazing Savior Jesus Christ, God's Son, actually is. He's not just some wandering prophet. He's not some flash-in-the-plan person who can gather a crowd. He's the one that will conquer death. He's the one that will evoke tens of thousands of hallelujahs to the Lord. He would result, it, it, this miracle would result in many putting their faith in Him as their Savior, according to verse 45. That would have eternal ramifications. There are people that are spending eternity in heaven that are, that are going to be part of the new heaven and new earth because of this miracle. God was glorified because He gathered in people who put faith in him. Look, when everything is rocking along without trouble or setbacks or illness or death, we often find ourselves really unaware of God's goodness and God's greatness. We're used to being healthy. We're used to being alive. It's the only thing we've ever known. We have no need for miraculous interventions. We assume that we are self-sufficient even though everything that keeps us alive at all, including the very air we breathe, was created by God and given to us as a free gift. The fact is that all of us, however healthy we may have been for years, are going to face illness, and we're going to meet death. I mean, I was just reflecting uh, as the choir was singing, and I, you know, I've, I've been here long enough to watch to watch people in the beginning of their prime now be in the senior saint category. In fact, the person that looks at me in the mirror is that person. I don't like it one bit. I mean, I'm like, I'm still 40 in my own mind. Um, I'm losing my mind. But anyway, um, (laughs) you know, but this happens. I mean, we know these people. We watch them. We, We watch people we remember when they were infants in their parents' arms, and now they're grown and married, and some of them have grandkids. I mean, come on. Life passes by. It's like a shadow. We know, we know death has happened to every generation before us, but it's, it's hard to imagine what it would be like to experience it ourselves. So when someone very close to us is terminally ill, when someone that we love dies it hits us hard. And when our turn comes, well, it's a different story. It's a common story, but it's the only time we've gone through this. All our confident, positive attitude of the past will do us no good, and pat religious sayings won't do either. We need the clear display of God's loving power exercised in our behalf. We need a God who will break the stranglehold of death on us when we can do nothing whatsoever for ourselves. And the question is, can he and will he do it? And that's what this miracle in Jesus' ministry is all about. So, what struggles and calamities could cause you to doubt God's love for you? Remember, we're introduced to this whole situation. Is Here's Lazarus and his sisters, and Jesus loves them. And he's going to go through illness and death. In what ways could your suffering turn out to bring glory to God as your Savior King? 
Well, let's go further in our text. We're going to see delay and death and danger that's actually going to work toward furthering faith. Verse 5, now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer. Now, that just seems like a total non sequitur. It doesn't follow. Like, he loved them, so he stayed two days longer. That's like you call up the pastor. We just had a, an accident on you know, Highway 185. He says, I'll be there in two days. I mean, unless he's in Zimbabwe, you, you expect someone to get there faster than that. He stayed two days longer in the place where he was, and it's about a day to make the, the journey. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in, that, in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he doesn't stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. So Thomas called the twins, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. This paragraph starts by reiterating Christ's love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And verse 15 underscores that everything that, that's happening to Lazarus was going to be for the good of Jesus' disciples. It was good to build their faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that he wasn't there to stop the illness and to keep Lazarus from dying. Sickness and death are not in and of themselves good things. They're a result of the curse. But God can and does turn such calamities for good. Jesus could have healed Lazarus. I mean, how many people has he healed by this point in his ministry? But what is a healing compared to a resurrection? I mean, if you had to choose, behind gate number one, you could have a healing and maybe different levels of illness. And behind gate number two, you could experience a resurrection. Which is more valuable? And so Jesus is going to raise him from the dead. That would be far more beneficial to Jesus' followers. For your sake, I am glad that I was not there. If we do not transfer the weight of our trust to Jesus, we cannot ever be freed from our sin and from our death. And we cannot enter the eternal kingdom. Our unbelief will damn us. Only those who believe in Jesus will be saved. So whatever dispels our unbelief, whatever it takes, is of great benefit to us. And Jesus finds joy in bringing us the greatest treasure of all, eternal salvation through faith in Him. So it is love that drives Jesus to do what He does. It is love that motivates his delay. And that's very clear from verse 6. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, so when he heard, he stayed two days more. He is not a slave to time. He is Lord of it. We often struggle with God's timing. 
I mean, have you ever found God to do stuff in your timetable? You know, sometimes he takes a thousand years to do what seems like should take a day, and sometimes he takes a day to do what should take a thousand years. He is not enslaved to time. We would be better off just to trust him. He can turn things suddenly, and he can take centuries to bring about his will. It was love that let Lazarus experience death so that Jesus would raise him from the dead four days later and his disciples would believe in him. It is the love for them and for the disciples that leads Jesus to cross back over the Jordan and return to Jerusalem, currently the most dangerous place on the planet for him and his disciples. Last time he was there was in December of the Feast of Dedication. We don't know just how long it has been since then, but not very long. And you remember what happened then? They took up stones to stone him. This is in chapter 10. For over A year the Jewish leaders had been trying to find a way to kill him. And to go to Bethany then, just two miles away from Jerusalem, was nothing short of suicidal. And that's why Thomas says what he says, let us also go that we may die with him. Jesus talks about the opportunity to work in the daytime before the night comes. He has work to do, a mission to complete. His enemies cannot lay hold on him until it is God's time for him to die. So danger cannot thwart his saving mission. It is clear as noonday to him what he must do. In fact, when the time comes, the danger will be part of God's accomplishing his death for our sins. And the death will not be the end. Because after that comes his resurrection. Even death will not stop him. So delay, death itself, and danger... Our passage today reveals that all of these Jesus uses not not just to show his power, but also to show his love for his people. His followers don't get a pass from the crises of life. You won't get a pass from the crises of life. Jesus shows his love not just by guarding us from such trials, and there are certainly many things that he keeps us from, but more significantly by guiding us through them. So what delays or dangers has God brought into your life? I mean, what has you churning at night? What has you fearful about what the next day will bring? What what makes you question what in the world God is doing? Since it is for your good that you learn to trust him no matter what? How could these delays and dangers, along with death itself, cause you to lean more completely on him? If you and I learn that, if, if the delays and the dangers and the death drive us to this, this complete trust in him, it's easy to see how God bringing these into our lives would be an act of love. God loves you. He doesn't want to throw you away. God takes you through these things to draw you close to him, to have you trust him and not just yourself and not just expect things to turn out, but to trust him through it. And then third, we see in our passage, faith in the certain promise 
of resurrection. Verse 17, now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So, when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Those words, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Another way of saying, where were you? We needed you. You could have intervened, and you didn't. The unspoken question ripping at our heart is this, why? Why Why didn't you come sooner and heal my brother? You loved him. You love us. Why did you wait? If you believe in a God who is loving and good and who could do anything, you wrestle with this question too. Every time a loved one battles with terminal illness, every time a deadly accident occurs that could have been avoided by a slight shift of circumstances, every time a spouse and children are left bereaved. Here's the answer Jesus gives Martha in her deep grief. Your brother shall rise again. She knows this, and she believes this. The resurrection on the last day is a long-established promise the people of God have held on to from the days of the patriarchs. I mean, Abraham so strongly believed in a coming resurrection that he believed that, that God would even intervene to raise Isaac from the dead when he was called to sacrifice him. Job believed that he would one day see his Redeemer from the vantage point of his restored physical body. David writes about the resurrection in Psalm 16. Isaiah writes about the resurrection. Daniel writes about it. And since it's the lying serpent that convinced Adam and Eve to sin against God and bring death on the human race, and since God promised that the offspring of Eve would crush the serpent's head, I believe Adam and Eve must have believed in the resurrection too. They knew what life was like before death spoiled it all. And they had faith that death would one day be removed through the promised offspring of the woman. That's why Adam named his wife Eve. Her name means living. Martha holds firmly to this confidence. The resurrection is coming. Death will not win forever. But it's important for her to understand that Jesus has personal power to give life to the dead, that he is going to be the agent of resurrection. He's already made this claim publicly. Over a year before, in John 5, for as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. In verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. Those who hear will live He goes on to say, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear His voice and come out, those who've done good to the resurrection of life, those who've done evil to the resurrection of judgment, and Jesus Himself will be the judge. Jesus is the reason death will be defeated. He is the woman's offspring. He will be the one to conquer 
death forever. He's already demonstrated his power to do so by raising other people from the dead in his earthly ministry. In the case of Lazarus, he will declare his power over death once again and then prove it again. No wonder John's prologue began this way. You remember it? In John 1, 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. In a world that is ever ending in darkness, life by life, ending in darkness of death, Jesus is the life. And the light burns in the darkness. So Jesus says to her in verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So this is a step beyond This is a step beyond just believing generally in a resurrection at the end of the age. This is saying, I believe you, Jesus, are the one that's going to bring about this resurrection. She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. So look at the promise of Jesus. Who will live even if he dies? Whoever believes in me. Not one person will be lost who believes in Jesus. Not one. Not one. Who will never die? Everyone who lives and believes in me. When you close your eyes on this earth and this life, you will open again in the next. To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. Death is a doorway. It's not the end for those who believe. Jesus has been promising eternal life to those who believe in him. He said they will never perish because they're his sheep and they hear his voice, John 10. In John 8, he said those who keep his words will never see death. And then in John 6, he says, this is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life and I will raise him up in the last day. I mean, look, this this resurrection, like Jesus did not, waffle on this. Jesus says, look, you believe in me and you have life. That's stronger than death from me. So he says to Martha, as he could say to each of us, do you believe this? And her answer, and hopefully ours, yes, Lord, I believe. Now, why Why does she believe this? Because of what she's come to understand about who Jesus really is. Look at that verse 27 again. He says, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God who is coming into the world. You, Jesus, are the promised Messiah. You are the anointed one who will save his people from their sins and rule an everlasting kingdom. There could be no everlasting kingdom unless the king lives forever and his saints live forever. So this king, this anointed one, has to be stronger than death. And all who are going to escape death must rely on him to do it for them. He's the son of God, just as Psalm 2 identifies him to be, identifies the Messiah to be. God has been promising for centuries that this savior, this anointed one, would be coming into the world, and here he is standing before Martha, looking into her eyes, calling forth her faith, 
calling her to believe just minutes before he calls Lazarus back from the dead. So let's think about this. Since God has for centuries promised resurrection to those that are trusting him, and Jesus has proved that he can and does raise the dead, what would it mean if there is no resurrection from the dead? I want you to think about that. In other words, we're talking about an all or nothing game here. Either God is the biggest liar ever, and Jesus along with him, or he's not. And if God's not a liar, then there's going to be a resurrection. It's as sure, it's as sure as this day. I mean, when you looked at this day on the calendar, when you first started looking at it, it was months away. But here it is. And that day is coming too. So how should certainty regarding your own resurrection and that of your believing loved ones shape how you look at this life with all its challenges, with all its delays, with all its dangers, and even with all the funerals? And what evidence do you show that you believe in Jesus as the one who is the resurrection and the life? I mean, if this is the way you're looking at life, you just can't approach life the way people that don't believe this approach life. You're not just trying to acquire all the wealth that you can. That's not, that's not it. You're not putting all your hope in your health and your wealth and in your children and everything else. Your hope is in God. You're going to go to a whole distance, and it's going to go out for billions of years into the future because you belong to Him. So several key verses summarize what happens in this passage. Verse 4, when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It's for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. In verses 14 and 15, Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. In verses 25 to 27, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life, whoever believes in me. Though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. The Son of God is glorified when human beings believe in him as the one who raises the dead. They thus honor him as he deserves to be honored. The question is, are you among them? Are you among them? Will you too experience eternal life as his gift to you? Well, only if you believe in the life-giving son. Let's bow our heads in prayer. God, we thank you for the record of the things that Jesus said and the things that Jesus did that we might 
believe. And Father, I pray that we might respond. Lord, there are are things that shake us, even as those like Mary and Martha that believe in you, it it still, it, it, it puzzles us why you wait the way you do, why you have us endure the problems that you have us endure, why we endure the losses that that we have, those that we love dearly. But Lord, we say with Martha what Mary will say later, Lord, I believe. I believe. And Lord, I pray that as we partake of communion together, you would unite our hearts in our faith in Jesus, the one who suffered death for us, for our sin, for our forgiveness, and then conquered death for us, that we too might be raised. Lord, help us live in that newness of life, conscience clear, and sorrowing as not as those who have no hope, but knowing that that we'll be reunited with our loved ones and knowing that we'll be raised from the dead as well and that you have both the power and the love to do it. For it's in Christ's name we pray.